I'm glad to be in a place where we can carry on. Someone called me this morning. I don't know, a couple people actually. We're going to have church. I wasn't even sure, but. Hey, we're Baptists. We carry on. We're going to be there. And that's, if it's 33 below next week, we're going to carry on some more. The colder it gets, the hotter we get. Okay, here we go. We're continuing our series on, uh, um, what are we talking about? Uh, the church. We're having a, a series of messages here on, on the foundations for the church as we're trying to set before people a kind of a vision for what we want Woodland Hills, what we feel God has put in our hearts for Woodland Hills uh, Church to be. And we're taking as our theme passage Acts chapter 2, which is uh, really the birthday of the church, where the church first began on the day of Pentecost when God poured forth His Spirit and people started carrying on. And uh, we're looking at, at what the church in the book of Acts looked like to get an understanding of what our church should look like. And what we're beginning to see, I think, is that the way the church in the book of Acts looked like uh, is quite different from the way church very frequently today looks like. I want to talk this morning about how the church grows, how the church in the book of Acts grew. What usually come, come, comes under the head of evangelism. Uh, and I want to take as my text a few passages. Uh, most of them are in your bulletin there. But Acts chapter 1, first of all, verse 8, which I think is the most important verse in the Bible when it comes to evangelism or church growth. And Acts chapter 1, verse 8 just says this, And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, in Samaria, and throughout the whole world. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You shall be witnesses. One of the main problems we have today is people trying very hard to be witnesses without the power. And you end up doing a lot of crazy things, not necessarily crazy, but futile things, when you're trying to be a witness without power. I, I'm not into my sermon yet. I'm still going to the next verse, but this just occurs to me. But I, I want to tell you, I, I, uh, when, I, when I was first a Christian, I was a zealous young man. I'm a deadbeat now, but I used to be a zealous, zealous Christian. And, and I, I, I was uh, kind of an environment under a teaching that really convinced me that uh, saving people was my responsibility, and I carried around a lot of guilt and shame and stuff in my life. A lot of you know what I'm talking about. And to this day, when I hear the word evangelism, I kind of flinch. It's like, no, 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 not that, not that, not that. But I did sort of a Jehovah Witness thing, you know, and I went around on just more to get guilt off of my back than it was to, to win anybody, because I never did win anybody, but it got a lot of guilt off my back. But I go around in these Minnesota cold nights, and I knock on doors, and uh, get a lot of ornery people answering the door, and ask them a question, sir, if you were to die tonight, uh, do you know where you'd be? Yeah, I'd be dead in bed. What kind of a question is that? <laughs> you say, sir, do you know if you keep talking? He'd say to me, sir, if you know if you keep talking, you'll be dead tonight. <laughs> but not much came of that, and I'm not against knocking on doors. I don't think it's very effective usually. And, but I always associate evangelism with that, with the guilt, with, the, with uh, you know, knocking on the doors and striking up awkward conversations and trying to shove my beliefs down someone else's throat. And it just seemed uh, awkward and weird and... and uh, the main thing, though, was that it didn't have the power. 
You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses, almost like a byproduct. This is going to happen, and this is going to happen. And it happens kind of a, as a natural sort of thing. It's not something you have to orchestrate, try, devise a program, get a committee to, to, to make happen. It, just, it happens. Where, where there's the power, there's the witness. Now, that's not my sermon. I'm going on to the text now. But that, Okay, Acts chapter 2. You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, just look at how this power operates. I'm going to skip a couple of these verses here. But if you look down, the Holy Spirit falls on the people. They get all blessed. They start praising God. People are attracted to it. They, 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 they gather around them. Peter stands up and explains what's going on. And then if you go down to verse 42, a lot of people are saved. And then the church continues on in this power. And it says, They devoted, all these Christians, these new Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Talk about that next week. And to fellowship. They devoted themselves to fellowship. It was a committed thing. They were devoted. And to the breaking of bread, they just ate together. And to, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many, awe and many wonders and, and signs were, were done by the apostles. And all the believers, get this, all the believers together had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to everyone as he had need. You, you need something? I'll tell you, I, I don't need this. I'll sell this and give it to you. Whoa. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. This is the, the, the big meetings. And they broke bread, they ate together in their homes, and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And what happened as a result of that? They got power to, to be the church, and as a result of that we read, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were, be, who were being saved. You're going to receive power. You become a Christian. If things are lined up right and, and you're open to it, you receive power, and as a result of that, you're witnesses. Let's pray. Father, we need your power. We can't be witnesses without your power. We can't speak the word of God with authority without your power. We can't worship without your power. We can't live the way you've called us to live without your power. We need your power. Thank you, Lord, for the way your power has been here during the worship service and for your presence and your reality. And I pray, God, that now you'd make the word of God come alive. Instruct us. Lord, we want to be a saving church. We want to be a church that, that is a magnet to sinners. God, send Send to us and use us to, to, to be the means by which this happens. Sinners from every walk of life. Pack this place with, with, with sinners. It's full of sinners right now, Lord, but, but we're all saved. A lot of us are saved. But God, I just pray you'd save, send unsaved sinners here, Lord God, that, that uh, we could be witnesses. And then, Lord God, motivate us to go out and be witnesses and use this message as one means to do that. We ask in your name. Amen. Amen. Last week... For those of you who weren't here, I'll repeat it. And for those of you who were here, I'll repeat it. <laughs> it's amazing I'm going to repeat it whether you like it or not. But what we saw last week is that the church judged by Acts chapter 2 standards, which is the standard of health. The church today is to some degree a sick church. At least the way we think about church is to some degree unhealthy. Most people, when they think of church, they think of a Sunday morning thing. We're doing church. We're going to church. Church is the place you go to. Most people, when they think of church, they think of something that um, happens once a week, maybe once a month for them, maybe once a year for them, and that's church. Most people, if we say it out loud and if we're really honest, when they think of church, they think of kind of a place where you go to receive. Christianity is about receiving something, and you get that uh, at church. There's holy people there called reverends, and their job is to feed you. 
And that's really the substance of Christianity. Christianity today is a largely an individualistic thing. You get together with a bunch of people that you don't know very well, and when you're done, you know, then you'll go and you live your life the other six days of the week or the other 29 days of the week, depending on whether you're a once a monther or a once a weeker. And, uh, and you live it before you and God. It's a private thing. No one knows about it. No one sees it. And it's just sort of there. And then when you need a filling, you go and get filled up. Christianity today is this very individualistic thing. It buys into the consumer mentality that, that so much is a part of American culture where you want to get the best product for the least amount of money and the least amount of effort, so you shop around and find the hottest show in town and then go there. And it's not really about finding a, a ministry uh, that you can plug into and finding a place that beats with your heartbeat. That's a legitimate reason to, to, uh, to, to, to be floating around. But what we get today, we saw last week, is a mass of Christendom that is addicted to floating, addicted to shopping, addicted to non-commitment, never getting rooted. And because they never get rooted, they never, get, they never grow, they never use their gifts, they never feel useful, they never feel loved by the church. A bunch of isolated, independent Christians who just have one thing in common, and that's what goes on on Sunday morning. Otherwise, there's nothing, nothing there. We saw last week that that's not like a, an indictment on the sheep. It's not an indictment on the mass of Christendom. It's not like they're bad people. It's just that we have a mindset that we've adopted that, that tells us that that's what Christianity is all about, and there's nothing really more to it. One main reason for the mindset we saw last week is that uh, early on in church history, Christianity bought into this pagan idea that you're supposed to have religious men, usually they're men, who are the mediators between you and God. They bought into the idea, we accepted lock, stock, and barrel, that you're supposed to have the religious professionals, the people who do the religious stuff, the holy men, the, the reverends, the priests, the fathers, the ministers, the pastors. And their job is to do the religious stuff, and the job of other people is simply to pay them financially to do the religious stuff. They're the professionals. So the job of ministry was surrendered over to the professionals, and the job of encouragement was surrendered to the professionals, and the job of loving by visiting in hospitals was surrendered to the, to the professionals, and the job of proclaiming the gospel was surrendered to the professionals. Everything was surrendered to the, to the professionals. It's getting hard to say, so I'm not going to talk about it anymore. <laughs> See what a mistake you make when you surrender to the professional speakers? They, they just botch it all up. The result of that is that we train the laity, and even that's an unbiblical term, as though there's lay people and there's non-lay people. I don't even know why they call them laity anyways. It's probably, it, you know, I don't know if it has a connotation that you're supposed to lay down or something. The laying down people, the <laughs> passive ones. But I'm just a lay person, just a lay person. As though then there's a separate religious guild of professionals who have the training and the, you know, blah, 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 and they do all this stuff. What we saw in the New Testament, though, last week, still doing last week's stuff, is that in the New Testament there is no such thing as a professional ministry. There is no such thing as the lofty, wonderful, evervescent, exalted religious guild of people who are somehow closer to God and have the special authority of God and hear from God because we can't hear from God. There's no such thing like that. What you find in the New Testament we saw last week is that you do have leaders, people who have the gift of leading, and you even have the, the, the principle of, of people supporting them financially so that they're enabled to do that full-time. But you never have any concept that somehow they're separate from the body or special from the body, and you certainly never get the idea in the New Testament that their job is to do the religious stuff. What you find in the New Testament is that, is that it's the job of the leaders not to do things for other people, but to equip other people to do things. Not to get people dependent on them in some kind of dysfunctional way, but rather to empower people, empower the masses, so that they can minister to one another, be dependent upon one another. 
And the church of Christ grows, becomes vibrant, becomes a healthy body, only in, to the degree that the body is interwoven together, connected together. To the degree that the body is ministering to each other. And that means you and 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 you. The health of the body cannot be located on what goes on on Sunday morning. Christianity became a Sunday morning thing when the idea that what church was about was watching the professionals came into being because the professionals do their religious thing on Sunday morning. I'm doing my professional thing now. And everyone has to go to the Sunday morning thing to watch it. And so Sunday morning becomes the center of Christianity, but in the New Testament it wasn't that way. They had a great Sunday morning experience. They had the temple court experience. They got together, they worshiped, they sang, they praised God, they proclaimed the word, and that's wonderful. Do it. Vibrantly, passionately, great. But that cannot be the center of what it's all about. The center of what it's all about is what we do with each other outside of Sunday morning. And that's when the reality of God, we talked about last week, the reality of Christendom kicks in. You discover, you discover your gifts when you're in relationship to other people. You discover what your niche in the kingdom is when you're in relationship to other people. You discover the power of God when you're in relationship with other people. You discover the love of God as it's modeled in other people towards you. And you learn how to love as you love other people. Here's where you grow. Here's where you develop. Here's where you mature. This is what Christianity is about. But the church today, having bought into this dysfunctional dependency upon ministers, has largely lost that. We need to get it back. And our passion at Woodland Hills is to be doing Acts chapter 2 kind of Christianity. My understanding of what my role is on Sunday morning and Steve's understanding of what his role is in getting small groups and Paul's understanding of what his role is and Mary and Barry and anyone else we get on the staff, a prerequisite will be that their understanding will be that their main job is not to do things for people but to equip people to do things, to empower the church, and then it comes alive. The church today, by that standard, is unhealthy. And it's also unhealthy in another way, and that is in terms of evangelism. And I think the two are directly related. In the book of Acts, we see that the church did what the church was supposed to do. It loved God, and it loved each other. It worshiped God passionately, and, and it ministered to itself passionately. And when it did that, naturally, it grew. A healthy body naturally grows. That's what a body does. So also, in the book of Acts, the church just did what the church was supposed to do, and as a result of that, the church grew. It got power, and when you get power, you're a witness. And when you're a witness, you grow. People get saved. It was a standard thing. You don't see a whole lot of that in Christendom today. You get people converted. That's how we're all here. But it happens here, there, and, and whatever. But it, the, the power of evangelism isn't present. I hunger for that power here. You know, we haven't, we haven't got there yet, and so this is what we've got to press towards, to be an evangelistic church that just is a magnet where people come and find shelter and find healing and find salvation. What goes on today, though, isn't like that. And as I said earlier, the evangelism feels unhealthy. It feels like, it doesn't feel like a natural thing. It feels like a supposed-to thing, an obligation thing where you go out of, out of shame and out of guilt, you go and strike up awkward conversations that you otherwise wouldn't strike up. There's an unhealthy feel towards it. What we need to get out of Acts chapter 2. The bottom line from Acts chapter 2 is this. If we want to be an evangelistic church, and we've got to be that. If we want to reach out, and we've got to reach out. The central reason for the church's being is to reach out, to explode, to have an effect, to be a witness. First thing Jesus says when he says the, the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you is that you shall be witnesses. 
There's a lot of other things that happen when the power of the Holy Spirit come upon you. You get joy, you get happiness, you get lightness of being, you get love, you get transformation, you get fellowship. A lot of other things happen, but the thing that Jesus notes is that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, what really interests Jesus about this power is not what it does to the church, but what it does through the church. It's a witness. And more and more people, Jesus says, as the power comes upon you, are going to be attracted to that. If we're a church that does what God calls us to do, we're going to be a witnessing church. That's all there is to it. But what we see in Acts chapter 2 is this. The key to that, the foundation for it, the fuel for it, isn't some program that I'm going to devise or, or Paul's going to devise. It's not some kind of tactic. It's not some, through some shame motivation. The way the church is best at reaching out is simply when the church does what it's supposed to do. When you get a healthy church, when you get a vibrant church, when you get a spirit-filled church, it by nature evangelizes. It by nature is a witness. When the power of God is on a sermon, so it's not just a speech, but it's something that communicates the power of God, you're witnessing. And when we worship, and it's not just singing, but the power of God is there, you're witnessing. And when we fellowship, and it's not just a nice little shallow sort of how's the weather or what's going on kind of fellowship, but there's a love there and an honesty and an openness there, you're witnessing. And when your life is filled with the joy of God and you've got a peace about you in the midst of all your struggles and you have a self-acceptance and an acceptance of other people in spite of the sin in your life and the sin in their life, when the love, the merciful, courageous love of Christ is there, you're witnessing. When the power of God comes upon you, you're a witness. It's a byproduct. It just happens. You're light on a hill. It couldn't happen any other way. Best thing the church could do. You see, what you got a lot today is, is churches that are unhealthy and they're trying to get evangelistic fuel going in an unhealthy condition. That's like trying to run a marathon when you got the flu. The best way to run a marathon is to get healthy. The best thing a church can do if you want to reach out is to get healthy. Start looking at Acts chapter 2 and start doing Acts chapter 2. Start being in Acts chapter 2, spirit-filled, spirit-driven, spirit-led, spirit-empowered congregation of God, and you're going you're gonna to be witnessing. It's going to be there. Now I want to talk about two ways that we are witnesses. And I want to talk about these two ways, not because they're the primary ways that we're witnesses, but because they're hardly ever talked about as evangelism. Two things we see in Acts chapter 2, where the church is a witness. And I want to talk about it because we never or rarely associate these two things with evangelism. Usually evangelism is associated with a personal conversation you have, and that's great. And that is a primary mode of evangelism. You, you come in contact with somebody else, the Christ is, is in your life, they see it, they want it, you talk about it, and they accept Christ. That's a primary mode of evangelism. But I'm not going to talk about that this morning. Because that's usually what people talk about when we talk about evangelism. Not that, that, not that's, that we don't need more talk about it, but right now I want to talk about, will you just let me get on with my sermon? Okay, so two, two, two things of evangelism. The first has to do with the temple court experience. And the second has to do with the household experience. We read in the passages that the, the, the early church did two things. They met in temple courts where they all came together and then they met in each other's households. Both of those, if we're doing them in a healthy way, are witnesses. First, the temple court experience. You see in Acts chapter 2, and I don't want to take the time to read through the whole thing. Take my word for it if, if you don't know it uh, on your own. Just trust me. But it's... That was supposed to be a joke. I didn't want to come natural. I'm a man of God, you know. You gotta trust me. I'm a, I'm a reverend. <laughs> I'm getting some weird looks here. If you weren't here last week, I made a big joke about reverend because it's not a biblical title, and I don't like to be called that. But okay, that's another story. I'm trying to get on with my sermon. They're in the upper room. They're not doing diddly squat. 
They're scared. They're up in the upper room. The, the disciples are there. There's 120 of them. They're not evangelizing. They're not doing anything. Then the power of God comes upon them. The Holy Spirit descends on them. First thing that happens when the Spirit of God descends on them is what always happens when the Spirit of God descends on somebody, they start to praise God. They start to really praise God. They praise God in power. They praise God in the Spirit. And as they're praising God in the power and the Spirit, people start to notice it. People start to come. They're doing it out loud. They're doing it open. There are, there are lights set on the hill, and people start to gather around them. They're just doing what a healthy bunch of 120, 120 people would do who are filled with the Spirit of God. They start praising God, and the Holy Spirit begins to draw them. The Holy Spirit begins to impress on these people something odd is going on. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, the people gathered around, and they were perplexed. They didn't understand this. And they were amazed. In fact, some of them said, these people are all drunk. These people have been, these people have been nipping. <laughs> They're drunk. That's what the Bible says. People gather on the disciples, and they must have really been praising God. They said, these people are drunk. And Peter stands up and gives a solid refutation that I think is just kind of cute. He says, you know, ladies and gentlemen, these people are not drunk, as you suppose, because it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Come back at 3 and we'll be wasted. But right now it's only 9. <laughs> We're, we're, still, we're, we're still trying to recover from yesterday, you know. It's <laughs> so down to earth. You know, wait a minute, it's 9 o'clock. Do you think we're going to be, you know, drunk at 9? The point is this. And we don't usually think of it this way, but when Christians, when Christians get drunk in the Spirit, it's a witness. The Bible says don't be drunk with wine. Don't get drunk. Don't get drunk with alcohol, but in Ephesians 5, it says, but be drunk in the Holy Spirit. You know, a person who's drunk, they're kind of beside themselves. I was talking to a lady last night. It was my wife's business party. They do their Christmas business party a month late. I don't know why, but they, they do it. Maybe they get the hall cheaper or something. And I was, you know, hobnobbing with the people and talking. It was a really fun time. There's a lady there. It actually turned out to be a really great thing of evangelism. It's a different sermon. I'll tell you about it, but it was really kind of powerful. I'm tempted, but i got to move on. Um, but... She'd been nipping. <laughs> and she was beside herself a little bit, kind of giddy, kind of light, and she, we, we were talking. Um, and, and she was just kind of, she, she would lose herself. She sometimes lose her train of thought. Uh, she would, kind of was uninhibited about herself. She wasn't focused on herself. That's one of the things that happen when, when you get inebriated. And she was just kind of talking there. When Christians get intoxicated with the Spirit, praise God, it begins to show, to get intoxicated with the Spirit, and some of that happened here this morning. Some of it happened last week. We were getting kind of tipsy that last song, weren't we? Uh, you get focused. I, I was watching you guys. You're, you know, it's getting dangerous around here. You start selling out. You forget yourself. You all of a sudden aren't concerned with what the person next to you is doing. You all of a sudden find yourself totally absorbed in the love of God, in, in, in the power of God, or whatever the song is. You get lost in worship. You get beside yourself, drunk in the spirit. Maybe you even start getting a little bit happy and you start doing things you otherwise wouldn't do. You know, uh, this turns into kind of a this and, and, and this turns into kind of a this. And, and before you know it, you're kind of going. And maybe there's some people next to you that are saying, well, what, do you have someone to drink before service? But there you are. You're worshiping God. You're lost. And here's the point. When, when you get drunk in the spirit, people notice it. 
And it's a positive thing. They may not understand it. The people there were perplexed. They were amazed. They were kind of dumbfounded. And yet there was something that drew them there. The Holy Spirit used that to draw them there. When I was talking to this lady last night, it took me about three seconds to discern that she was a little bit beside herself. For one thing, she leaned into my face and went, Hi! It's like, Ho! Hello! Hello! Uh, bartender, she's had enough. <clears throat> you smell it! It comes out of your pores. It's there. I think what the scripture's saying is this. You know, when, when we have God-intoxicated worship, whether it's in the Sunday morning experience or whether it's at home, you begin to reek with Jesus. It's interesting, but in the next chapter, it says that, that uh, um, uh, Peter and, 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 not Paul, but Peter and someone else were uh, uh, at the temple, and it says that the, that the Pharisees there, or the Sadducees, discerned, could tell that they'd been with Jesus. Now, Jesus had been gone for, for 50 days, but apparently they'd been in prayer, and something about them, these people could discern that they'd been with Jesus. They were reeking Jesus. They, they smelled of Jesus. They were intoxicated with Jesus, and people could see it. When we are in worship and we become God-intoxicated, yielded to the Holy Spirit, when the Spirit of God begins to invade this place, you begin to smell it. And even if you're not a Christian, even if you're not a believer, you may not understand it, you may not know, what, know what's going on, you may think these people are a little bit fanatical, but there's something about it that's real, something about it that's attractive, something about it that all of a sudden puts some meaning onto, onto Christian words. The reality of God is present. And I believe that that does more in terms of impacting the non-Christian than anything else we could ever do. It's kind of like this. If I want to sell you a car, let's say I got a hot car outside. No, no car would be hot today, but I got a cool car outside. <laughs> My 1988 uh, Horizon. <laughs> Ho! It's got one door handle left. These Horizons, the Horizons, you know, the, the, the engines are good, but the, the body is just, I've, I've yet to see a Horizon on the road that doesn't have at least four or five dents in it. Uh, they're, they're cheap bodies, but that's why they cost, you know, so cheap. But uh, the door handles, are, why am I telling you, I'm supposed to be selling you a car. Well, let's say that I, I, I got a good car outside, a, a, a um, what's a good car? A Ferrari. I can tell you about the car, I can brag about the car, tell you about the interior, the nice you know, leather and, and the steering wheel and the engine, and I can tell you, I don't know what I got my car. Yeah, it's got an engine. Yeah. <laughs> Tires, too. <laughs> and that might make you kind of interested in, in it, but you might not believe me. After all, I'm a minister. No one believes ministers, I just found out this morning. <clears throat> and so you, you might not, you know, I might have some persuasion with you, but not a whole lot. But if I say, listen, come here, I'll take you outside and show you the car. Come on out, yeah, sit in it, sit in the car. You, know? you can't drive it now, but, but, but turn on the engine. Kick the tires a little bit, look at it, check it out. Now, that's, if that's really a hot car, it's going to make an impact on you because you're seeing the reality. You're, you're touching the reality. You don't know everything about, there is to know about the car, but it's making an impression, impression on you. And here's the point. Our, we, we need to have words in our evangelism. We need to talk the truth of who God is. We need to talk about the love of God. We need to talk about the power of God. We need to give a testimony about what God does in our life. And all of that is good, and all of that is wonderful, and all of that is necessary. But nothing but nothing comes close to impacting the mind and the heart and the lives of, of non-Christians more than when they can begin to sense it for themselves. And when they can come into a place, a temple court experience, where the Shekinah glory begins to come down, and God begins to inhabit the praises of his people and the beauty of Christ begins to be felt and the, and the spirit and the aroma of God begins to, to, to fill the place and Christians begin to get God intoxicated 
anyone with a little bit of openness in their heart and anyone with a little bit of eyesight, spiritual eyesight, and anyone who's open to it is going to begin to sense that something's going on there. And they may not have words for it. They may not have categories for it. They don't have a theology yet. They may not understand it. But one thing is certain. There's life in this presence, and they need life, and they know it. And the Holy Spirit uses that to begin to draw people. The point is this. We need God-intoxicated worship. God deserves it. We need it personally, but even more than that, we have an obligation as a witness. Because the Bible says that God inhabits the praises of his people. And as we yield, God inhabits those praises, and the Spirit of God is here. It delights me when I hear people say things like, I don't know what it is, but when I walk in here, I feel something different. Some people come, and one person I talked to said, I don't know what it is, but, and this was a non-believer. He says it was a non-believer. He says, you know, when I come, I just start crying, and I don't know why that is. I start crying. And there's something that makes me cry here. The Holy Spirit makes people cry sometimes. I love that. There's something real here. There's a kid I talked to some time ago who just says, you know, I just was for five years turned off to church and I just came here. Someone invited me here. And there's just something real about this place. That's where it's at. That is where it's at. No words, no theology, no program could ever do what that does. The Spirit of God is here and people sense it. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you're a non-believer. And that's great. We're glad to have you here this morning. And maybe you sensed during the worship service something and you don't know what it was. I'll just tell you, like Peter told the crowd, he goes, this is that which was prophesied. What you felt was the Holy Spirit and God is real. What we've got to know, though, is this. It doesn't happen by accident. You don't get drunk by accident. If I were to come home tonight, I never do this, so don't worry about me. I, I'm, not, I'm not a drinker, okay? But, but if I were to come home tonight, Walk in the door, you know, kind of fumble for the keys. I, know, I always fumble for my keys, but come in the door and, hi, honey. Hi, how are this morning? I, honey, it's, it's evening time. Oh, I thought it was morning. She says, you're drunk. Someone asked me today, or on Thursday, they, they, uh, they were doing a video of, of uh, professors and what their opinion was about what the Bible says about alcohol. And I don't know why, I, I'm mischievous, but they asked me, you know, Professor Boyd, uh, what, what do you think the Bible says about alcohol? I said, how should I know? Get out of here. <laughs> no, it's on tape. <laughs> yeah, I'm liver snappers. Well, if I come home and, and I'm like, oh, I ask, and she goes, how did you get drunk? And if I said, it was an accident. <laughs> I was just driving home and I got a little drunky. <laughs> chances are, no one never knows for sure, but chances are she wouldn't believe me. Because you don't get drunk by accident. You've got to make a decision. I'm going, you know, people do this too. Uh, they say, I, I'm going out and I'm going to get drunk. So they go out and they get drunk. I'm, and they declare it. I'm, 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 I'm going to get trashed tonight. You've got to be intentional about it. It doesn't happen by accident. It's just the same with the Spirit of God. Very rarely, now God's sovereign, he can do it every once, but very rarely does it happen that you're walking down the, the, the sidewalk and all of a sudden, whoa, God, whoa, praise God, whoa. <laughs> God is great. It doesn't happen by accident. God tells us how it happens. God tells us how it happens. It happens when people yield to God. It happens when people pray and intercede and say, God, we need you. The Spirit of God inhabits the praises of his people. When people come and they're committed to worship, when people come and they say, doesn't matter how I feel, doesn't matter what I've been through, doesn't matter what my week's been like, doesn't matter what happened last night, I'm going to praise God because God is worth it. And when they commit themselves to prayer and yield and submit their lives to God, 
Then the Bible says God inhabits the praises of his people. When we focus on the Lord and forget about ourselves, the Bible says God inhabits the praises of his people. And then we begin to reek. We begin to reek with God intoxication. And that's the kind of drunkenness the Bible prescribes. Our passion and our challenge is this. When we come together, when we come together and worship, come ready to worship. I think this morning, you know, we were getting tipsy. Yeah, that was great. Come ready to worship. Robert here, just the other day, he asked the question. Robert, you know, we, we teach next to each other, and he's always giving me a hard time about a lot of things. He's my sermon checker. You know, he's always like, now what you said the other day? Anyways, but he's always good stuff. But he said, what would happen if people came to church having already worshipped for an hour or a half hour or ten minutes and having prayed a little bit? What would happen? Or if we did that throughout the whole week, what would happen if we came to church drunk in the spirit? <laughs> Come ready and committed to say, God, I don't, I'm not in the mood. You know, I, I'm hardly ever in the mood at 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock in, in Sunday morning to worship and to preach. I'm not. Who is? But you come and you say, Lord, because you're worthy, because you deserve it, because I need it, and now, because others who are there are going to need it, I'm going to worship you, I'm going to praise you, whether I feel like it or not, no matter what's going on, I'm going to give you the glory that is due your name. And then God inhabits the praises of his people. We begin to reek with Jesus. A second thing, and I, gotta, I, I, I was too long on that point, so I've got to make this one short. Um, but see, since we're all intoxicated, who pays attention to the time, right? Oh, I can't even read the clock. Someone hold that clock still. <laughs> a second thing is this. The Bible says that, that they got together after their temple court experience and they began to minister to one another. They got in groups and, and, and supported one another. They'd sell what they had if someone was in need. They gave money to one another. They held one another up in prayer. They did their gifts with one another. And the Bible says that as a natural consequence of that, God added to the church daily those who were being saved. Jesus prayed this prayer, and this is an evangelism prayer. Father, I pray that they all would be one in love, even as we are one. That the love that, that constitutes the eternal Godhead would begin to be a part of their experience. Father, I pray that they may be one, even as we are one. And then he says this, so that the world would know that you have sent me. Now, of course, when we're one like the Father and Son are one, there's joy and there's peace and there's a lot of great stuff that happens to us, and that's all wonderful. But the thing that hits the heart of Jesus is not that, but what happens as a result of that. Then the world will know that you have sent me. And the point is this. The reality of the love of God that sent Jesus Christ to the cross and the reality of who Jesus is will be communicated to this world in which we live when they can see it concretely incarnated in our everyday lives. When they see that love is real between us, then our word about God's love will begin to be credible. They'll begin to see that love is a real thing. And maybe this talk about the Holy Spirit and talk about redemption and talk about the atonement begin to take on some meaning. But only when they begin to see it in our lives. The Bible, it's really interesting, the Bible never distinguishes between, or distinguishes but never separates between our love for God and our love for one another. What's the greatest commandment? Well, Jesus has to say, well, there's two things I've got to tell you. Love God and then love your neighbor. John says, if anyone, in 1 John, he says, if anyone loves God but doesn't love his neighbor, he's a liar. The two are intricately, intricately connected. And so it is in our witnessing. Our talk about God's love only has meaning to the degree that we show it in the lives of one another. 
when we are bound together in love and when we do the stuff that Scripture tells us to do in encouraging one another and supporting one another and helping one another out, then the love of God begins to be real in our life and we begin to be a witness about it. But not until. And when do we do that? We're here this morning. You probably know eight or nine people here in the crowd here. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm one of the pastors here, and, and I don't know, if I know a, a third of you by name, I, I'm lucky, you know, I'm, I'm kind of backward when it comes to that kind of stuff anyways, but it's just impossible to get to know everybody in any kind of personal way on Sunday morning. Hopefully we love one another here, and, and, and I would encourage you that if you see a person, you know, alone or whatever, reach out and love to them and, and start talking to them, and we want to be friendly on Sunday morning. But the way that love becomes concrete, the way it becomes tangible, the way that it, it, it happens so that people can begin to smell the intoxication of Christ is when it's incarnated in our lives. And that doesn't happen on Sunday morning. It happens outside of Sunday morning. When we get together, we have a, a group of Christians surrounding us, a small group that we can meet at at a house once a week or whenever. People that we can be honest with, people that we can be real with, people that we can tell all to and they're not going to reject us people that we can study the word with, people that we can pray with. Then the love of God begins to be real. People that, when we're in the hospital, they'll visit us. And when we're broke, maybe they'll help us out. And when we're laying sod in the backyard, they'll maybe be over there to help us. And when we're moving, maybe they'll lend a hand in helping us move. And when we're going through a divorce, they'll be there to support us. And when we're going through some other kind of crisis, they'll be there. People who will laugh with us when we laugh, weep with, weep with us when we weep, people who will be a source of encouragement there, then love begins to take on flesh. Then it begins to take on meat. Then it begins to be real. And then when the power of God comes upon us, the love of the Holy Spirit is upon us, we are witnesses. Do you know how many people in our culture, the vast majority of people in our culture, are dying for love? It's God's love they need, but they don't know that. What they're dying for is people love. My daughter just told me about what her friend told her about her mother. And that's that her mother, who looks so together and on top of the world, cries every night because she doesn't have a friend. And I think there are a lot of people in our world, and a lot of us here this morning, cry because we don't really have a friend. Got a ton of acquaintances, but we don't have a friend. Someone we can tell all to. Someone who will accept us no matter what. Someone who cares about us. Someone who's willing to get involved in our lives. And when the church can just do what the church is supposed to do, love one another, encourage one another. When we do that, it's a witness. It's a witness. They'll know the truth of Christ when they see our love for one another. Our passion at Woodland Hills, and this is also the challenge, is to be an Acts chapter 2 church, which means that the Sunday morning experience, we want it to be spirit-filled, we want it to be intoxicating, we want it to be everything that God wants it to be, but we don't want it to be what defines exhaustively your Christian life. We want to get people who are members of Woodland Hills Church, members of this, this body of Christ, and by that I mean anybody who is at all spiritually aligned with this place, get you, members of the body of Christ, attached to the body so the finger's onto the hand and the hand is on the arm and the arm is on the shoulder, the shoulder's on the torso, the torso's on the lower part, whatever that's called. So that we're, all, we're a body, we're, we're, we're cohesive. And to get everyone involved in small groups where you can begin to grow in doing your gift, begin to do all the stuff and receive all the stuff that makes Christianity come alive. And to do it not in a clicky kind of a way, but in a way that's open. So when you invite a friend over, just like when you invite a friend to church, in church they begin to sense the Spirit of God. When you invite a friend to one of these fellowships, they would go, whoa, these people are really ruthlessly honest. They'd see that these people aren't afraid of admitting sin in their life. They'd see that these people really care about one another. And you know what? There's not a person on the world who doesn't want that. And that hunger, God will use as a magnet 
to bring them to a message of salvation. When the church is healthy and does what the church is supposed to do in worshiping God, in loving God, and loving one another, that, more than any other kind of strategy we might have, is going to be a witness. Our focus then has to be in being a passionate people who worship God and a passionate people who minister to one another. I want to encourage you in this way, okay? Just, just, just take this. Be praying about this and be thinking about this. Whether or not God would have you be involved in a small group ministry. And it's going to happen. You think I'm talking some ideology here, some dream? It's happening now. Steve, how many people have signed up uh, to be leaders in small group? Twenty. We got 24 people who've already said, and we've already got like 18 groups going. We got 24 people who said, "Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be a leader of a small group." That doesn't mean you're going to do the teaching or whatever. We don't want another dysfunctional dependency. But it just means that they'll kind of be at the center of it, have a house, and, and have other people come. And our job, Steve's job mainly, is, is, to, is to teach them. He's going to have a training seminar. And just kind of how to run a small group, how to begin to get people to be, to, to be intertwined with one another. Maybe God would have you be a small group leader. Think about it. If not, maybe God would have you be a part of a small group experience. I'd encourage you to do that so we can begin to do an Acts chapter 2 kind of thing, loving one another, surrounding one another, encouraging one another. When we're the healthy people that God calls us to be, a healthy church doing God's stuff, we're going to be witnesses. And I look forward to the day when we're going to see floods of non-Christians coming here and getting saved and then plugging them into small groups, getting them in ministry, and the thing will just keep on going on and on and on and on. Let's stand. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord or you've never made a public profession of your faith. I want to encourage you. Maybe you're here this morning and you just sense that something's different. You always thought this Christianity thing was just sort of some abstract philosophy, but this morning you sense something real. I want to encourage you to come forward here this morning and there'll be someone who would love to talk with you, answer whatever questions you might have, and maybe even lead you in a prayer that really is, it constitutes the birthing process of becoming a Christian. Or maybe you're here this morning and you just have some other, other need in your life that you'd like to pray about. Uh, we'll have two or three people up here that would love to pray with you. So the, the, the front is, is, as always, open for ministry. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your power. And thank you, Lord, for the fact that when the power comes upon us, we witness. People just see the reality of God, and that's what being a witness is all about. And I pray, God, that you would make every temple court experience, every Sunday morning experience, a witness experience here, Lord God. When unbelievers come here, as maybe there are here this morning, I pray, God, that they would sense the reality of the God-intoxicated worship here, Lord, that, you, that, that they would begin to sense that you are, you are as beautiful as the Bible says. You are as gracious as the Bible says. And that, Lord, you'd use that to draw them. Also, Lord, make us reek with Jesus Christ throughout the week, Lord. I pray, God, that people could smell Christ on our breath, that people could smell Christ in our pores. And that wouldn't be about our righteous behavior or some other kind of nonsense, Lord. It'd be about our love. It'd be about the presence of God on us. It'd be about the gracious way we relate, Lord, that, they'd, that they could discern that we have been with Jesus. Help us to go forth carrying the aroma of Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.